Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, your ways are not our ways, and the salvation you have won for us defies the wisdom of this world. Therefore, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to bless and work through the words of today's sermon, that we may reject the theology of glory and be theologians of the cross. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 35. To remind you of that account, I will read the first verse. Jesus went away with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is the word of our Lord. Who do people say I am? Brothers and sisters in Christ, many people see Jesus as somebody who makes it possible for you to earn your salvation. We will celebrate here very soon on October 31st, 1517, the day that Martin Luther, frustrated with indulgences, posted his 95 Thesis to debate those indulgences. You know, at that time, he did not completely, with crystal clear clarity, understand the good news of salvation in Christ. He was getting there. And he did not know the corruption of the church and all the hornet's nest he was about to open up. But through that snowballing effect that led to the Reformation, less than a year later, in May of 1518, the other Augustinian monks in his region had asked Martin Luther to present the theology that he was saying Scripture clearly taught. And it's there that he irons out two key things. Allow me to read their very short Four of the thesis, thesis 18, it's certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he's prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Thesis 19, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. Romans 1 verse 20. In other words, when God has hidden his will from us, claiming they can see it. Thesis 20, he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. And thesis 21, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls things what it actually is. And there it is, brothers and sisters in Christ. He coined two terms that are still used today. The theology of glory that looks to doing good works in order to be saved, that's actually evil. That's not how God has planned it. But that's the natural theology that's built into each one of us until God's Holy Spirit working through the Word shows us differently. And then there's the theology of the cross. God would save you by His suffering and death. That's not glorious in the ways of the world. Now you're wondering, why are we talking about theologians of glory and theologians of the cross? I'm not a theologian. Well, yes, you are. Theologia means to speak the things of God. And Jesus has given us a commission to speak about that cross in our salvation. So it's important for you to know those differences because when we're speaking, our sinful nature will naturally want to talk about our own glory and the glory of this world and the way God should be glorious, which is not by God's ways. And then there's the theology of the cross the way God wants us to speak of him, the shame and suffering, what the world views as weakness. And so today I will ask you, are you a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross? And I'm not asking you with a yes or no. We're actually asking to expose those areas where maybe we're clinging a little bit to glory. And Martin Luther, in his explanation of Theses 21, says, This is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. 
And that really paraphrases everything of today's text. And so we're told, Jesus went away with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others say one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? He asked them. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Then he warned them not to tell anyone about him. Do you hear the different explanations given John the Baptist? John the Baptist was Jesus' forerunner, and by now he'd been beheaded. John the Baptist, as predicted in the Old Testament, we're told would be a true Elijah. Elijah was a great reformer when the people had turned to worship Baal and the false gods in the region. So Elijah was a great reformer. And that's what John the Baptist was, because he came and he showed people their works don't save them. They needed a savior. And others said the prophets. Now, what do these three have in common? One, they're all godly men who spoke by the Holy Spirit the word of God. Two, if Jesus were them, then they clearly teach a resurrection. The people were expecting it, although Jesus was not them. Three, they all denied that Jesus is the Christ, true God who became true man in order to save us. Now, stop and think about that. That's the theology of glory. When we take salvation out of Jesus' hands, when we take his godhood or his humanity out of his hands, because the minute we do, then we have to do some of the work in order to be saved. We have to earn it. And as we learned in our epistle lesson in James chapter 2, we can't earn it. God expects you to be holy 100% of the time. And so if, God, if you're supposed to do a little bit of good or extra good to make up for the bad, you're never going to get there because you can't do a little bit of good to make up for the bad when you've got to be good 100% of the time, period. We need a Savior. And Peter, speaking out for all of the disciples, says a tremendous thing. You are the Christ. We say Jesus Christ. That word Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed means the same thing as the Hebrew word we say Messiah, anointed. Now Jesus is the only one who is anointed to be our Savior. That happened at his baptism, John the Baptist baptized him, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove and God the Father speaks. This is the only one who is meant to be our Savior. And that means you don't do good works in order to be saved. Rather, when you are saved, God has made that new person in you to do good works. And those good works, as we heard in the epistle to James, are proof of our faith, because only God can read a heart. But we get confused and we think we've got to do good works in order to be saved. That's the theology of glory. And it's sad to say, we often, one of the questions we ask, are you a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross, is, who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Savior who is true God and true man who did 100% of the work to earn your salvation? Or is he kind of your Jesus buddy? Somebody who's your co-pilot through your life and that's it. Is he somebody who made salvation possible for you? Or is he somebody who did make salvation for you? Is he somebody who kept the bigger laws so you could go back to that covenant and if you keep the rest of the laws then you'll be saved? Is he somebody who made it possible for you to do your best and then God will do the rest? 
Because all of those are theology of glory. You see, they still glory from the God-man who is the anointed Savior who did win your salvation and they put some of the glory in your hands. Sad to say, we should just naturally do good works because God's love is in our heart. But lots of times we have selfish motives and don't even realize it. Well, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel special. But... If we're doing good works in order to be saved, we're taking glory away from God. Christ is the only one anointed to do that. This is hard for Americans to understand, and I love this country. But you see, we are a melting pot, and that's a good thing. But unfortunately, we tend to translate that into our religion, and that becomes a bad thing when we think all roads lead to heaven. The minute we say everybody's going to the same place, we deny that Jesus is the Christ. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ won your salvation. He sends his Holy Spirit working through the message that you need a savior. You can't save yourself. And that God is your savior and he did save you. And he gives you that faith so that you know you're saved. Even the religious pluralism that is so common in America it ends up robbing God of his glory, and it always ends up going right back to, then you try hard enough. It's just a matter of how much you have to try. Do you have to try 100% or 1%? It's still taking some of the glory from God and putting it in your hands. So, are you a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross? And that's simply answered by who do you say Christ is? The Savior, who's done all the work for your salvation, anointed to do that, or somebody who made it possible for you? And that simply is where the rubber hits the road. But as I just mentioned how Jesus saves us, he predicts that a full year uh, before he ends up on the cross on Good Friday. And that's in verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the experts in the law, be killed, and after three days rise again. He was speaking plainly to them. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But after turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have your mind set on the things of God, but the things of men. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what would the world call a glorious God? A guy who comes down with thousands of angels, whammo, hits the world with his fist or whatever, and everybody knows his power. Or a guy who's born in a barn to a woman claiming to be a virgin. Which one is glorious in the world's eyes? Jesus tells his disciples, by the way, the guys who are supposed to be pointing to me and keeping Israel on the true religion, they're going to come and they're going to hate me and despise me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to they're end up crucifying me. And brothers and sisters in Christ, in the world's eyes, it looks like Jesus is murdered through a kangaroo court. But you and I know he's true God. He could have called on a thousand legions of angels. He could have come off that cross and with his power just wiped out Jerusalem like a nuclear bomb going off. Thank the Lord he didn't. He won your soul by suffering the consequences of your and my sin on that cross so you and I will never know what it's like to suffer an eternity in hell. He won you by his suffering after first taking on human flesh and living his life perfectly for you so that he could credit you with it. This is foolishness to Peter. Peter chews him out. Jesus has to say, huh, you, got, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of this world. Because what God calls glory, his grace, 
is not what the world calls glory. It wants great displays of might and power. That will come on the last day. By then it will be too late for the unbelievers. But brothers and sisters in Christ, the second question is, how do you view the cross? And this might seem simple to us. Well, I view it as my Savior paying for my sins. Do you know how many churches in, a, in our country today, they've done the research and they find that people find the cross offensive. They say it's the equivalent of nailing an electric chair above your altar and wearing electric chairs around your neck. So they take the cross away. And that piece of wood or plastic we put up, it's meant to remind us. It's not where the power is. It's Jesus Christ who, the, who has the power. But it's amazing when those churches do that, well, they quit preaching about sin. Because if the cross is offensive, then you don't need to know that your sins need to be forgiven and that you're a sinner. And they quit preaching about forgiveness. It's amazing. Lots of times the focus starts becoming how charismatic their preacher is. He, a lot of pressure gets put on him. He can't stumble and stutter up there in the pulpit. They give the people what they want and they lose what they need. They give them the theology of this world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ on the cross is God paying for your sins. It shames me that that's the case that needed to be for me, but it makes me happy that He loved me and He loved you enough to do that. And the empty cross, that's God's proof to you that your sins are paid in full. God abandoned God on the cross so that God would never have to abandon you. This is the thing we glory in. And notice the Savior wins you through suffering. And so he continues on. He, in verse 34, he called the crowd and his disciples together and said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Jesus is talking about you're looking out for your own physical temporal neck. Well, you'll lose it. But if you're trusting in him for eternal life, you may lose this temporal neck, but you've got all the life, eternity, and that's what matters. But he, he did that. He won that for you through his own suffering. And in those words, he promises suffering will come to you for being his little lamb. Of the disciples who hear this in their ears, one of them, Judas, will betray him. He'll fall from the faith. And all the others, minus one John, will die martyrs' death. John will die of old ages, but even he in his 90s will be exiled to the island of Patmos because he won't deny the resurrection of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the cross Jesus is first and foremost talking about is the fact that Jesus purchased and won you to be his little lamb on that cross. You are property of God, and the world hates God and the salvation he gives in its natural unbelief, therefore they will hate you because you are property of God. You are his precious little lamb. Now maybe in America today, and this is one of the reasons why I love our country, I don't have to worry about being put to death for being a Christian. It happens when, I've gone to, when I went to college. Textbooks that took cheap shots at my faith. We go to work. And sometimes we're afraid to talk to our co-workers who are suffering and hurting, or maybe they snarl, or we're afraid to talk to our neighbor because we don't want them to hate us for being a Christian. The world will do that. That's part of the cross Jesus is talking about. And to be honest with you, in anything that we suffer as a result of our faith is the cross. But if faith is removed and, and it would still be there, that's not the cross. So if our unbelieving neighbor suffers the same thing, we're not bearing the cross. 
But God does allow you to suffer, not to earn your salvation. In this case, it's to keep you in your salvation. The apostles would not deny the Lord. And that gives us all the more assurance. 2,000 years later, the men that the Holy Spirit inspired to write the resurrection account were so certain of what they saw that given the choice to deny it and live, they chose to die. They were that certain. They would not deny it. And when we're persecuted, we're reminded, even if they take my life, God's given me eternal life. And yes, there are crosses we bear uh, living in an unbelieving world. And, and there are times, even a disease, if it, we start wondering, God, why aren't you removing this? Why, isn't this? why aren't you answering my prayer? That can start to become a cross to us. But God is actually using that to strengthen our faith. He subject this world to decay so that we would not get attached to this world because he's promised you a glorified body and a new heavens and a new earth free from sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are a lot of theologians and Christian churches today that will teach you the opposite. If you are you in debt, just scrape all your money together and send it into the Bob Barker Television Evangelism Ministry. Jesus is going to get you out of debt in three months. That's a theology of glory. Are the ones who will teach things like, if you just follow my 12-step process, then you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. They're preaching worldly glory. They're offering you the things that kill you in this world. Jesus says suffering will come. Now, this is not a self-induced suffering. Like in Martin Luther's time, when people would uh, leave the world, go join monasteries and beat themselves, thinking this helped them not to sin. It's not a self-induced suffering. But when God allows it, it's for your good and for your neighbor's good. He uses the cross is where he won your salvation. And we allows those hardships in your life, your crosses, he's using them to keep you in your salvation, using them to show you where you are attached to the things of this world. Each one of us bear unique crosses and they're unique, custom-tailored acts of God's love so that we don't deny our faith, so that we can see where we're not trusting in him and so we can see God's hand working to provide us. So I ask, are you a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross? Answered by two questions. Who do you say Jesus is? A good man, somebody who had the word of God, somebody who made it possible for you to be saved or the savior who did save you. And that points right to the next question. How do you view the cross, both Christ's cross and the crosses he allow on you? Are they something that aren't glorious to you? Or do you see God's glory through the pain and suffering that he used to win you and the pain and suffering he uses in your life to keep you until the day he comes and removes all pain and suffering? Let me wrap up today's sermon by once again reading Luther's Thesis 21 and his explanation. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. This is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. These are the people whom the Apostle Paul calls enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For they hate the cross and suffering and love works and the glory of works. Thus they call the good of the cross evil and the evil of a deed good. God can be found only in suffering in the cross, as has already been seen. Therefore, the friends of the cross say that the cross is good and works are evil. For through the cross, works are destroyed, and the old Adam, who's especially edified by works, is crucified. It's impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works, 
unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and that his works are not his, but God's. Amen. And now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom and priest to God his Father, to him be glory and the power forever. Amen.